Andrew, thank you very much for joining me back on the show, man. I appreciate you uh, you coming back. We recorded previously. It didn't work. The files corrupted, but we're here, and the world gets to hear your beautiful voice again, so I'm very happy about that. Oh, it's a good thing it is, Matt. Good to be back, man, worldwide. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So I'm... Uh, how's, I'm everything, how's everything with you? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not doing too bad. We're surviving the quarantine so far getting to talk to lots of fun and interesting people like yourself. So it definitely, definitely passes the time a little bit better than just sat around on social media. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm, I'm interested for, for the world to, to get to know Andrew Locke and Andrew Locke's strength more. Obviously, we mm. spoke previously about various different topics i want to bring a few of those back because you are the mastermind around the spine you're the king of backs your your extensive research mm. and work, work around spine and spinal health is absolutely phenomenal and i'm really really interested to, to, to kick things off by teeing this off with you in the sense of that do you think that that we are suffering with genuine with the, with the amount of genuine lower back pain that we kind of see on on a daily basis with both general pop and kind of athletic fields or is this uh, a case of the the pain is actually more of a referred pain due to weakness that tends to be the underlying issue with the vast majority of these people oh man a beautiful beautiful concept to bring to you there is no pain in the body pain doesn't actually exist okay one thing to remember this is it all comes from the brain and how you process it. A fairly clear example of that is if you were a quadriplegic and we happen to be sitting together having a chat and I pull out my cigarette lighter and I start burning your finger off, we would both be looking at it going, yeah, that's a bit shit, but you would not be feeling any pain because the nervous system has been unable to get to your brain and your brain has been unable to deal with the signals and sort of figure out what it might be. So you actually don't ever have pain in the body. It's all constructed by basically what you have, which is your virtual body and your brain, which is a thing called the homunculus. So that's your somatosensory cortex. Now, the other side of it is if you have somebody who has a stroke and that's a brain injury, but you see them have physical signs of it, it's because it's affected the motor cortex. So there's no actual body pain. It's all construction from the brain. That doesn't mean pain doesn't exist. Pain is it's real because you construct it, and reality is what you construct, whether it's your eyes, your ears, what you taste, or anything. So reality is pretty much between your ears, and so is pain. Now, the question really comes down to, is there a biological trigger that you're experiencing? And that's yes, because the tissue in your body is sending information to your brain and saying, uh, we're a bit strained. We are feeling as if there's something here which shouldn't be right. We need to action this with some form of movement. And that is usually to get away from it, whether it be sticking your finger in the fire or whether it be, shit, I just deadlifted with bad, poor form, flex too much, and now something really hurts. So remember that. There's only brain has to do the construction, but you do usually, in about 99.99% of cases, need to have a biological trigger that will cause you to feel pain. How's that for a good answer to it? Yeah. yeah now, very there are those who will... <laughs> Certainly, because I've, I was counted up you know, a couple of years ago, I've seen well over 100,000 patients over my time and still obviously seeing more every day. 
yes, occasionally someone will stand out and you look at them and go, you are actually not having a biological injury. You've got a psychological injury. That happens, and that can happen for the right reasons because somebody who's had trauma as a young person can have a hypersensitive nervous system. But trust me, it's rare. So the people who tend to go towards, you know, it's all in your head, not quite the story. You usually do need a biological trigger. We can go right back to ancient Greece and there's writings about lower back pain. We can go back to Egypt and there's writings about lower back pain. Lower back pain probably more realistically exists in our society because we are hunter-gatherer bodies. So in an evolutionary sense, 400,000 years of hunter-gatherer, yeah, then we ran into agriculture. That changed the way we did things and now we're into technological advancements. We are now into different postures which are not normal in a hunter-gatherer. So we're sustaining positions which are not what we're evolutionarily adapted to. Well, that's what gets down to me is all I've got to look at somebody saying, your body's doing what it should in nature in a sense of restricting calorie expenditure, so you sit in really shit posture. The whole point being, you're turning your muscle off, you're hanging off your ligaments, and at some point, that starts to become a little bit of a fatigue. Then we decide we need to do something active, so we've been sitting in poor posture, hanging off our ligaments, not hurting, but but we are fatiguing them. Then we go into training, might be that CrossFit moment where the WOD says, you know, deadlifts to fucking, you know, now, AMRAP or whatever, <laughs> and your, muscle, your muscles aren't doing what they should do, and you go into a movement pattern with certain muscles switched off, and sure enough, you create a biological injury. Now, that's really the cascade of how it all comes together. That's why we do activation work. Remember, this is what I always say to people. Activate, mobilize, warm up, train. Training is the fourth part of your process before you actually get to lift a weight. We always say you have to earn the right to lift a weight. So you have to activate, turn the muscles on once again, get the moving patterns going. We mobilize to make our joints do what they should do in the, in the pattern we're going to go. Then we start with the lighter weight, go through the patterning, and then we start the program. Now we're honoring our hunter-gatherer heritage by actually reinstalling the software for movement. <laughs> There's the answer to, are we having back pain? Yes, we are, for a very good reason. Yeah, well, it's 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 obviously that thing of How's that you know, we're so we're so bound to our technologies, to our cows, to our desks, being sat in all of these comparable positions that you, you know they have at the time it doesn't feel like much, but we're so unaware of like the long term damage that we're doing to ourselves just being sat in these semi comparable positions because it's that whole kind of compounding factor. You know, over time, we're not thinking about how many thousands of hours we're sat at a desk in, you know, a slightly kyphotic position, which is going to put us slightly, slightly out of alignment. Mm-hmm. And then exactly like you said, so so in terms of, you know, you're carrying this back across to your training, do you think that this is an issue that is heightened more by the training populace? Or do you think that this is something that is heightened more by the gen population because they aren't actually doing anything necessarily active to be engaging those muscles you know whether that is in the gym or just doing kind of like a slightly more aggressive you know hit cardio or something that's going to actually get your body moving yeah the concept behind that realistically is um comes back to just the evolutionary um processes so if you can imagine when you used to be out in the ethiopian floodplains and stuff like that right you know out in the desert and your body was basically moving in patterns 
that were trying to be efficient at calorie usage because if you burned a lot of calories, that meant you need to hunt a lot of calories. So in evolutionary heritage, the idea is the most efficient body that could burn less calories through movement had more chance of survival. Now, that's how we've learned to hang off our ligaments, which are not um, active, uh, say, structures. This is one of the concepts behind why, how I teach back rehab for people. You only hurt the passive structure because the active structure was weak, not strong enough to hold the endurance for perhaps the movement, and the movement pattern is dysfunctional. There's just three things you've got to know how to, when you fix up a back problem. Passive, active, and neurological. That's all it is. It's not tough. Most professionals are too confused, but they shouldn't be. They, most professionals I deal with, they have to sit them down, pretty much grab them by the ears and say, you actually know and you need to be confident in what you did learn. Now, relax and understand there's nothing there you haven't seen. We have seen every muscle. We have seen every nerve. We know what they're doing. Now, let's apply this to the problem. And it's fairly obvious. If you um, bend your finger backwards, just a little bit of pressure on it, so it's bent backwards, it won't hurt. Hold that for two hours, it's going to hurt. That's your passive structure. That's your ligament basically stretching. It won't like it. So I look at the passive structures are your discs. They're your bones. They're the things you can't contract. Active system, there's your muscle system. Well, if you can teach your muscle system to protect the active system, then you won't get hurt. Muscle strains are ridiculously almost non-existent, like unicorns for spines. You really don't strain muscles in your in your back. It is such a common thing for people to say, oh, you strained a muscle. No, you probably had your muscle turn off and you pissed off your disc, and that's why it's taking you four weeks to move properly. The statistics are 80% of all back problems get better in four weeks, regardless of whether you slap a fish over your head, whether you see the chiropractor, the physio, whatever, dry needle, foam roll it, you're still going to be better 80% of the time, regardless of what you did. Because your body goes to heal. That's what it does. It heals. 92% of back pain is better in eight weeks. This is just the biological healing processes. This is just how it is. It's not the magic of the practitioner. That was one of the fun things I was told many years ago by a very wise old um, therapist. She said to me, just make sure that you're there when they get better. They'll think you had something to do with it. <laughs> right? <laughs> So like every single time, you're like, make sure you book back in for four weeks, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you again there, and yeah. we'll definitely be there by that point. Spot on. This is why I give you exercises and see you four weeks later, because I know you'll be better. <laughs> uh, I, only, <laughs> I only tend to get the hard cases anyway, so I tend to get the ones that are 8% that fall outside the eight-week mark, because people who book in to see me, it takes about 10 weeks to get in anyways, <laughs> so if you just hurt your back, you ain't seeing me tomorrow. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested to talk about that see the ones of who kind of like keep keeping on track with like your kind of like biological healing process. And obviously, you know, now, <clears throat> I mean, I look back to, you know, when I was a kid and they're, you know, they're throwing around the kind of rice uh, acronym left, right and center. And obviously that's kind of kind of changed now and various studies have come out and we've shown that ice isn't necessarily going to be as beneficial as it was. So in terms of, you know, utilizing your own or like kind of like biohacking yourself, I guess, like not interrupting your body's natural processes. Yeah. Are you, are you someone yeah. that's very interested in saying, okay, actually, you know what, because 80% are going to get better within these four weeks, like we yeah, we're going to give you these light things to do, but realistically, this is just going to be a time thing and we just kind of need your body to kind of work its own shit out really. Pretty close to perfect. 
is the fact that all I've got to do is say to somebody reasonably, you are going to heal. If I, if I speak to somebody in the early stage, all right, where's the pain? Where's the problem? Understand the mechanism by how it got hurt. Don't do that damn mechanism the same way at this point. Now, if we're dealing with a pec tear, for example, all right, someone tears their pec, not a total rupture, can be pretty big. Like there's a couple of people who I know, there's um, a guy called At Muscle Nerd, you know, it's Gus Cook. He did a nice huge pec tear, right, in October last year. And he was lifting 190 kilos as he was warming up on his bench press. He's a good bencher. Now, that was October, and I think it must have been February. He's back with 190 kilos again. And he was told to have surgery. And I said, no, you don't need surgery. Let's test it out. So he started with an empty bar because it didn't hurt to press. When he found he could do the empty bar quite well, then he added a couple of kilos. Then he added a couple of kilos until he just subjected his body to the right amount of stress as he was healing. And now he's back to his 200 kilo bench. And now he was told it would take 12 months if he had surgery. So now he's essentially... Uh, well, eight months ahead of schedule. Yeah. And that's what happened is, yes, you have an injury. Understand if you work with it, you can actually just allow the scar to heal properly and everything's going to be fine. But you have to know what you're doing a little bit. So deadlifting, deadlifting is a skill that you've got to work with. If you got hurt deadlifting, you probably lifted like shit because you wouldn't have got hurt if you did it properly. So there's a bit of a clue behind it. Right. different to a peck in a bench. That's a little bit different, I think. But most people, as they hurt their back, they will have flexed under the load when they shouldn't have flexed under the load. And so I've got to fix up their movement pattern. Got to make them strong, but I've got to use their hips better instead of their back. One of the concepts I like to do here is when people come and tell me they've hurt their back for you know over the last 10 years consistently, I usually look at them and go, your back is your strongest part of you. What's happening is your body is always using your back to do everything because you've got a lazy ass and you've got no abs. And they go, oh, yeah, but I, I squat and deadlift for my abs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do not do any abs. Now, let's say you try and get off the ground, and you can't get off the ground. <laughs> so what it is is the back isn't the weakness. The back is the strength, and the back's putting up with everything you're freaking doing, and the rest of your body's on holiday just watching it, eating popcorn, and going, yep, let's see you go again. <laughs> That's what it is. The back is not the weakness. It's the weaknesses everywhere else. Fix up those weaknesses, and suddenly you are turbo you are supercharged. Now you've had, now you've bolted the supercharger onto your body. Now you're going to be better. But we always say, what's the definition of insanity? Do the same thing and expect a different outcome. If you haven't addressed why you got hit in the first place, you'll just go and do it again because you're going to be doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So rehab for me is, is that. That's rehab for me is let's have a look at the videos of what you were doing before you got injured. And, okay, I can probably identify it like I do. I do so much Skype and um, distance uh, consulting these days is probably at least half the practice. I'll be talking to New York in the morning and Las Vegas in the afternoon and maybe like an early in the day, maybe England like yourself. And realistically, all i got to do is send me your history. Let's have a look at some videos. Okay, now I know what your problem is and I can show you what to do. As a therapist, I don't put my hands on people in the practice. That's a waste of time. It really is. Why did you get hurt? Show me what you did. Now I'll tell you why you got hurt. Here's the exercises to fix it. Do these and you won't get hurt again. And that's pretty much it. It's not that tough. I get the active system and the movement and the movement pattern fixed up, and you won't piss off the passive system. There's the construct. Passive gets hurt because the active system's weak, 
and the movement pattern's terrible. Fix up the movement pattern, make the muscles that are weak strong, and guess what? Your passive system is not going to get hurt. That's all it takes. Well, it only took me 100,000 patients to figure out exactly how to do it you know, by Skype. <laughs> so in, in terms of doing that, in terms of the, that, that slow return, is it a case of, like, obviously you mentioned there that, that, that your man started off with just kind of just the empty bar and got conditioned to that. So when you're returning from injury now, I know you're obviously mm. going to kind of open and say it depends because for every single person it's completely specific. And, you know, you can't carry it across. But mm. are you looking to kind of start the, the spinal rehabilitation process with simple bodyweight stuff going and teaching those movement patterns and getting the, the body used to that and then slowly starting to add what accommodative resistance is it just flat resistance what yeah. are you working on to bring that kind of general level up welcome to the science of it all goes back to about first year physiology and biology which practitioners seem to have learned it passed the exam and then forgotten a simple principle Specific adaptation to impose demand, the said principle. Right, you'll adapt to a specific load or pattern, and that's what you do. You do it frequently. So in the early stage, specific adaptation to the imposed demand. If you happen to bend forward when you lift your deadlift and you're flexing out of your spine when the load comes up, I'll teach you how not to do that by changing your movement pattern. You'll do it at least 100 times a day, and your body will learn it very quickly how to do it correctly. So you will have adapted to me teaching you a movement pattern, not necessarily the load. I might just um, teach you that you, no matter what the load, you still move like shit. All right, better go back, learn to move properly, then we add the load. No problem at all, simple. So if you've got a low load, you practice with high frequency. If you've got a high load, you practice with low frequency. Hey, it's all just makes sense. That's why I always figure, this shit makes sense. Science is fairly straightforward. There's no mystery. If your practitioner makes out it's a mystery, it's because it's a mystery to your practitioner, not a mystery to anybody else. Yeah, they just, just, just <laughs> so try to pass you out of Fix more up. money then. <laughs> that pretty much happens. Yeah, a lot of people figure that they're good practitioners because their bank balance is big, right? Not whether their patients are getting better. So, yeah, there's a lot of wacko stuff out there. But once you bring it back to the real science of success... You're right. You throw the load at the person, but the load that's appropriate for them to handle for them to move forward as they adapt. So it might have been Gus with an empty bar at the start there, but his movement pattern is impeccable, so I'm pretty happy with that. So all i got to do is to impose a load at that point as he starts adapting to it. Whereas, you know, somebody who shows me what their deadlift form is and it's terrible, we might just go straight over to the wall, face the wall squats. All right, you can't negotiate with a wall. It's not going to listen to you. You're going to have to deal with it, and you'll suddenly move. Learn how to use your hips. <laughs> yeah, that whole go. That's one of the most useful. Tools. <laughs> yeah, and I go good. Go away and do that a hundred times a day, and I'll see you in four weeks. By that time, you'll have cracked almost ten thousand repetitions, and you'll probably move properly. Now, at that point, let's go over to the bar and put some weight on it. Good. By which point, you're like a genius. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it most days. <laughs> so I, I, I'm interested because so I, you know I work as uh, 
in a physiotherapy clinic. I get to work with you know kind of uh, some of the the top top physios in England, and it's very very interesting being in that dynamic because of course, obviously I I see a, uh, mm-hmm. several clients, they see several clients. We we talk and discuss, and it's very interesting to 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 kind of hear from from each perspective about you know um, how people keep their you know their clients on track with all of their programs their rehabilitation and i'm i'm interested Mm. to hear from your perspective how much of the time do you think that people are actually overdoing it in their rehabilitation and honestly how much of the time are people going into it a bit too pussyfooting around and not actually doing as much as they should be because they're just scared of, you know, psychologically or kind of doing more damage. Because like you said, you know, you're getting guys getting back into to those like weighted movement patterns in quite short spaces of time. So there's obviously the body has the potential there to bounce back and do these things. So are we just being a bit a bit of a pussy about it? Are we not really giving our body the, the kind of the gratitude it deserves? It's more probably a communication issue. So if a client sees me, they are confident that I know what I'm doing, mainly because they can tell that I do do what they're coming to see me about. If you've got a therapist who looks unsure about exactly what they're saying, that will make the client unsure. So I have a little process which is fairly clear. You move like shit, stop moving like that, okay? And it's pretty much, I'm black and white. If they do an exercise, I will tell them, why the fuck did you do it that way for? What do you think? We speak in a very common language on that way. So it's very much about communication. I also inform patients, if you don't do my exercises, I charge you double next time for wasting my time. So you will do your exercise. That's a good one. There's another part of the deal I sometimes throw in. I also throw them, the harder you work, the better I look. Your job is to make me look really good. You go and do exactly what I say twice a day, and you will take up your part of the deal. You do what I tell you, you'll be okay. Do lots of it. I'm going to look good, and that's what it's all about, making me look good. That's part of the deal sometimes. So compliance comes down to the fact that the client believes that you know what you're doing. So communication is imperative. A client can tell I know what I do when I deadlift or I squat or I'm talking to them about playing a sport because I've done a lot of different sports. It makes sense. And if you show them that you know the science behind it, then it's not tough. But if you're slightly unsure, there's a wedge of unsure unsure in your client's mind. So it's not that hard. It really is. And the rule is, I'm I'm here to make you feel guilty if you don't do what I tell you to do. And let's face it, most people who are coming to see me will have had years of problems. So they are a little bit desperate. They will have spent tens of thousands of dollars probably in bullshit rehab. And it's time for them to get them back. So they take it seriously. There's those, you've got to find out the things that motivate your client. And it might be fear, it might be what they wanted. There's so many different parts of it, but as long as you understand why they are who they are, then you'll communicate on a very similar basis. So I can have the best rehab in the world, but if I didn't communicate it correctly, it ain't going to work. There is a lot to that. Now, I, I always figure every human interaction that we have, it's basically communication you shouldn't need to learn communication skills as a professional really because you should have spent nearly 18 to 20 years of your life going through school talking to people you should know how to communicate if courses are spending time on communication i'm wondering 
what are you doing? Human beings should know, be aware how you interact. That's about all it is. Now, learn how to assess. Spend more time learning assessment skills, learn treatment skills. For fuck's sake, don't spend your time dribbling on about, you know, how you're supposed to communicate too long because you really should have figured that out by now. <laughs> yeah. So that's why get, I don't like pain. Get so it much. across and make sure that you know what you're talking about and it sounds like you know what you're talking about and in which case your clients are probably going to get on board with whatever you've got to say. Yeah, and if you haven't got it, you don't proceed to therapy or treatment approach until you have got that communication established. That's it. it you can't past that point you don't go into the movement unless your client and you are congruent with your expectations that you understand each other good now we're on great now we go out and do what we're supposed to do which is I think and sometimes that, that happens through an exercise no sorry carry on i was say i do that through an exercise perhaps i might find what a person's got a problem with make them do a movement pattern or an activation and then retest it and they go oh shit that's better and naturally it will be okay now you trust me now you know i know what i'm doing then we can communicate further and we can move on to it. So sometimes there is that. I will use an exercise to show that, yes, I know what I'm doing. And that brings them to confidence. Great, now we move on. So it can be that sort of communication where you're setting somebody up so they understand and believe in you. Lots yeah. of different ways to get into that point. Yeah, and I think it's 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 a case of that we see so often within the industry now. I mean, there are so many of, you know, like these quick fixes and, you know, that this is what you need to be working on. And, you know, we hear the, the, the term obviously like weak glutes and weak core and all of this stuff thrown around left, right and center. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, they will just use it as a general scapegoat because if you tell someone to strengthen up their glutes and strengthen up their core, even if they're not necessarily doing it, you know, let's say not even 70% correct, they're probably going to get some benefit out of it from their body so that prescription then looks good on paper because it has cured the problem although we find that there may have been a thousand and one other ways in which we could have done it better and created better foundation for long-term progression and development but but do you think that this is the case that we are getting a little bit lazy with these general prescriptions because they will in fact just generally help most of us there's a good point if you're going to move better, you're probably going to be better. But it comes down to another part of that, the said principle again. Now, strength is not necessarily the size of the muscle. It's how the muscle moves in the movement pattern that you're loading it with. So you've got weak glutes and you have a problem when you collapse at the bottom of your squat and you give somebody hip thrusters, you're fucked up. That's not the movement pattern. So you can make them into a really shit-hot hip Trip thruster, you've just made them strong at the end of the range, not in the bottom of the range. They're still going to squat, hit the bottom, and go valgus because you didn't strengthen the specific pattern. Ah, specific adaptation to impose demand. First year physiology. Where's your problem? Good, you collapse at the bottom of a squat. That's what you've got to fix. You strengthen the glutes up, but you strengthen them in a position which is not relevant to your problem. There's the science behind it. It's not tough. That's what I see every day. So good. good. You got, you've been doing glute work? Yeah, but you were doing it in a position which isn't replicating where your problem is. Good. Now let's go to that position and I'll strengthen you in that position. I might use a hip thruster to turn your glutes on, but I'm going to put a band onto you and make you squat in that position perhaps. Box squat. There we go. Now I've got you specific to the pattern you were having a problem with. 
go go ahead, do 100 a day and come back and see me in four weeks. Basically, there's a science behind it. So it's really interesting. You look at it, the principle is straightforward. Specific adaptation to impose demand, whether it's biological tissue under an injury that has to heal like a scar or whether it's a movement pattern disorder. Find the disorder, be specific to the problem, apply the intervention, success. It's so easy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, when you say it like that, it is Jesus. <laughs> so I, I'm interested to, to hear, obviously, when you're working with uh, athletes and obviously, you know, guys that have big benches, big squats, big deadlifts, mm-hmm. with these kind of issues in, in motor patterns and stuff, is it a case of that, you know, they are maybe only kind of uh, getting the pain issues because there is a very, very, very small breakdown in that motor pattern that they have kind of put up with for years and years and years. And that might be why they have found a plateau in a certain lift. They can't quite break past that point. And it's now a case of that, you know, even guys with you know, let's say three three fifty kilo deadlifts are having to go back and go, okay, take three or four plates off of the bar, this is how we need to load you, and then you're going from there. There is certainly that to it. One of the things about it is the bigger person you are and the stronger person you are, almost universally the more dysfunctional you will be. And you're really good at putting up with dysfunction and you don't know that you're dysfunctional. So there's a little bit of an interesting thing is all people are definitely not the same. Now, that comes from the fact that what can happen, I remember seeing Andre Milanichev, right, at a contest about three years ago. He came out to bench press. He had 240 on the bar. He missed it. He came back out and got it on his second rep. No one knew except for a couple of people backstage. He'd torn his tricep on the first rep, hadn't he? Now... Who's going to come out and do a next rep with a torn tricep? Not me, not you, but yes, Andre Milanichev will. Now, how the hell did he do that? <laughs> He's not the only person to tear a muscle and go out and perform. Bill Kazmaier did it on a bench press. I'm pretty sure his 666 was done with the torn pec that he did on the rep earlier. All right, so if I'm dealing with Kazmaier and Milanichev, I've got a different sort of person to deal with then I have a person who tears something and we're going to have to slowly get them to adapt. Everyone's a little bit different and you've got to know how they function. I get other people, it's fun one is um, I love to get these ones. I give them an exercise and as they go to do it and they haven't even lifted, they screw their face up. They haven't even touched the bar yet, to which I'll usually say, what the fuck did you do that for? And they look at me and I say, why did you screw your goddamn face up? You haven't lifted anything yet and already you're pulling a face. And I usually say, okay, stop it. Smile. You are now going to lift with a smile on your face. And they get it because they realize that they anticipate it. These are the very two ends of the spectrum. And you actually have to work with that and everything in between. So sometimes you've got to understand how the person processes pain. Some people anticipate pain. Other people, they don't even feel pain. And I do have one of those people who's a great client. She's a lovely person. She can break a bone and she can't feel pain. One of a very few people in the world actually has a condition like that. And it actually comes from, I think, somewhere in Scotland. There you go. There's very few people have it, but they're recognized. They can't feel pain. So it's not about... <laughs> so I get to play with it. 
it's not too bad. Yes, it's, it's useful to be able to process a bit. And um, you know, that's the thing about the good athlete and the great athlete. I get them, they come in, and they see me when they are really fucked, but they don't know it. They actually are just starting to experience it. And I look at them and go, you're so dysfunctional. And it really happens. The better and bigger and stronger they tend to be, the more shit they are in certain patterns, but they're really good at other patterns. That's another thing I often advise people that don't ever aim for a balanced life. Because if you aim for a balanced life, you'll be shit at everything and nobody will ever know your name. That means you're not good at anything. You're balanced. <laughs> to be really, really good at something means to be unbalanced. It means you go away and you do lots and lots of things more than anybody does in a particular way and you'll get really good at it. As a result, you'll sacrifice other things and you'll be really shit at them. They're the things you don't care about because you only care about success. So successful athletes tend to be very unbalanced human beings. Great. Go ahead. If you want to be successful in anything, become unbalanced. Business, love, weights, whatever it is, whatever you want to be good at, you're going to become unbalanced because you're sacrificing. So the athlete who I see who's really, really good at deadlifting or benching and squatting may not be able to wipe his ass because he hasn't got the mobility to reach behind his back. I've had this happen before where someone walked in and said, I can no longer wipe my ass and my wife refuses to do it for me. It's about time I fixed up my problem. <laughs> Great. You're one of the top 10 in the world and you can't wipe your ass and neither your wife isn't going to do it for you. Maybe your training partner will, but if he's really happy about it. <laughs> they're so dysfunctional, but they're so good. <laughs> so do not expect your best athletes sometimes to move really well. They're functioning in spite of their dysfunction, not because of it. That's why they're successful. Yes. So there's a bit of insight into the top level ones. Yeah, that's a fantastic a lot of way them of looking at it. But really... it's, they're, they're also those athletes, you know, they're also going to be the ones where if you go, okay, this is this is what I want you to do, X, Y, and Z, and I want you to do that 50 times in the morning, 50 times in the afternoon, and 50 times at night, they're going to be the ones that you can literally guarantee your life savings that they will be doing that at morning and at lunchtime and at night. And that's also why they're the guys that can come back after you know, rupturing their pec and like six months later be almost bench pressing, you know, similar ways to what they were doing before because these are the obsessive, you know, it's not even like 5%, it's like the top 2 or 3% that are just, you know, it's in their blood. They, they literally, they, they don't know anything else. That's just how they work. So true. That's exactly it. These people, we always say the best athletes do the most boring shit more often and better than anybody else. That's what they do. They do the basics really well. They spend their time activating. They spend their time in the joint movement patterns. And guess what? They perform longer and better because of that. And they can handle boring shit. That's the way they do. The old bodybuilding thing was, you know, if you wanted to grow muscle, where you could, if you didn't have to run, you walked. If you didn't have to walk, you stood. If you didn't have to stand, you sat. And if you didn't have to sit, you lie down. That was how you grew muscle. <laughs> I love that. Much simpler times. <laughs> Very much, yeah. I can remember a couple of the pro, um, the world pros I used to deal with. You know, the most exhausting thing they would do outside of training was PlayStation. <laughs> that was it. They'd train, they'd sit down, they'd eat. <laughs> and watch TV and play. And we and we wonder why we have all of these uh these, these imbalances in our body going from uh from one extreme to the other. Absolutely, it's all there. Yes, so it's a rare one who has nearly got it all. 
And so it's a, that's where the communication comes in, knowing where your client's goals and dreams are, what you can deal with, what they will do, and applying the right intervention to that person's psychology as well as their physical problem. That's not too tough if you can you figure people out pretty fast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now I'm interested to to hop back onto the glute subject because I mean, again, we we could talk about this for forever, but I easy. I definitely feel like we're now coming to terms with the understanding that to work our glutes, you know, it isn't just kind of banded kickbacks, donkey kicks, fire hydrants, basically every exercise you see, every hungry Gymshark girl do on Instagram. And actually what we need to be doing is we need to be applying some form of load to the glutes. We need to be getting it working with with something that is then going to have that carryover into our sports, whether that be actual gym-based stuff or other strength sports like strongman or rugby or athletics or whatever. So how much do you think, because obviously I know you, you enjoy using bands, you like to use your bands for activation, but you're also a big proponent of actually getting people to work with some real fucking weight. So, so talking about the glutes, how much should we be focusing on actual weighted work and how much should we be doing the, you know, hungry Gymshark girl stuff? Well, here's a bit of fun for you because my love of life, of course, being spine work, right? Now you work in a physiotherapy clinic, right? Get ready to start to open their eyes if they already are not open, but you cannot ever treat a spine problem without treating a hip. You can't treat a hip problem without treating a spine. If you are, you're missing something very important there. All right, the psoas muscle, for example, attaches from your lumbar spine and crosses over and attaches to your femur. It affects both your spine and your femur, right? Now, if you'll probably find that in almost universally, people who are having a back problem will have a tight psoas muscle. Why is it doing that? It's because it's a spinal stabilizer. If a muscle is tight, remember, we do not stretch a tight muscle. We activate the opposing muscle because it means you're stabilizing. You don't get rid of your stabilizers. So if something's working hard, it's tight, pat it on the head, thank it for its work, and find out who's not working. Now, if you've got a tight psoas and you've got a back problem, that means your glutes are probably not balancing it out because your glutes are the hip extensor. Your psoas is your hip flexor. So if you've got a tight psoas, you better do some hip extension work. But you're treating it back. Yes, you're treating it back through helping this tight psoas, stabilizing your spine, but you're also making your hip now work into extension. Oh, that feels better. Yes, it does. There's a mechanism behind it. But if you have a hip problem where you've got impingement of the hip, that's where the psoas is pulling the femur forward. All right. Now, that means you're going to have altered your spinal mechanics to accommodate it for the fact you've got a, a hip that's slightly sitting forward. That means you're going to probably extend through your lumbar spine to accommodate for the fact you're not extending your hip. Great, now that means you've got to do back integration for hip problems. This is the essence of a success, is understanding that hips and spines work together. That's at least where you're going to go. So yes, I'm going to do some high frequency glute work, low load, we may do our kickbacks, we may do certain things to make the glutes fire up to balance out the femur. But then we're going to put them into a pattern that's specific to the person's problem and load it. 
Absolutely. It's what I mean. You combine the two things. The strongest guys in the world I deal with, hey, they do my clams. They do the lock clams. They don't do them with weight. They start off with no weight. Then they start applying weight. It's just the activation series. Yeah, activate, mobilize, warm up, train. So this is one of the biggest keys is knowing that the glutes, in fact, through an activation are going to help your femur sit better. But if you've got a problem in your squat, then doing kickbacks isn't going to help your squat. Great. Activate your glutes, put it into the pattern you've got a problem with. There's our loading. So it's really awesome is to suddenly realize that you do use both ends of the spectrum. High frequency, low load. High load, low frequency. There's our success. I, I think, so you've got to have those glutes firing up. Yeah, it's but it's interesting because it's. I think we're learning more and more now that you know we believe not too long ago that it was you know these certain rep ranges for to elicit this response, these certain rep ranges to elicit these certain responses. But actually, we understand that you know you doing a set of you know fifty lock clam shells versus you know someone doing a set of ten on almost sub maximal glute weighted work yes it's still going to elicit a response yes the response is going to be different but they're both individually working their way towards a greater goal of strengthening and stabilizing that muscular area so kind of it's that whole thing of you're better mm. off doing something than nothing and actually trying to do as many things around that area as possible because they're probably all going to have benefit Spot on. Now it comes back to actually where success comes in, whether it's rehab or whether it's sport. So there's a famous lady called Bev Francis. Bev Francis is the first female to ever bench press 150 kilos back in the 80s. Bev's record held for over 35 years before it was broken in Australia. Now, the interesting thing about Bev is she's a lovely girl and she lives half a year in New York and most of her life has been since she moved to the States, but she comes back to Australia every now and again. Okay, so I chased Bev over a while because I wanted to ask her, how does she ever bench 150 kilos? We're both IFBB pro judges, and one day she had the fortune of sitting next, next to me and she couldn't run away. And I turned and said, Bev, how did you ever bench 150? And she turned around and said, I bench pressed, squatted, and deadlifted seven days a week. Now, bring that thought to your trainers. Bev came from an athletic background. Funny thing was I said, Bev, you benching 150 kilos was the equivalent to Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. And she said, yes, we had the same coach, Fran Stanfield. <laughs> now, the thing was, <laughs> Bev, Bev brings forward that you practice as an athlete. So although Monday might be a program bench day, you're still going to put a bar on your back and you're going to put a, a squat pattern in there. You're still going to practice your deadlift. Next day comes in, you've benched on Monday, well, you're going to put a bar in your hands, you're going to practice your setup, you're going to put your technique together, but it's not a day where you're programming it. You might be programming deadlifts. But seven days a week, you practice the movement patterns that you perform in. Now, you can see immediately that makes sense if you're a tennis player, doesn't it? Do you think there's a tennis pro who doesn't practice for two hours a day? Absolutely does. Is there a golf pro who doesn't practice two hours a day? Absolutely not. They all practice. Weight trainers think, I trained bench yesterday, therefore I've now got so many days off. No, you haven't. You go get an empty bar, you put a little bit of weight on it, you practice getting your technique right, you get your foot position right, you pull your shoulder blades down to your ass, you learn how to hold the position. That's what we do. Now, that's what success is. Now, that suddenly translates to rehab, doesn't it? 
it's all very straightforward scientific principles of success. Whether it's performance or rehab, it's about imposing frequent load loads, practicing neurological success, then loading that up for your performance days and your program days. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's not tough. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because of course we see this whole kind of this concept of overtraining and people kind of talking about you overdoing it, and I think that 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 scares a lot of people off of. Uh, you know, working these multiple movement patterns every single week, kind of looking at, you know, like a small old program or something where, you know, you're squatting four, five, six times a week. It's like to the vast majority of people that aren't within the industry, that seems like a really, really overwhelming amount to be doing. But then when you when you when you think about it, like from the skill perspective of reinforcing the, the the motor pattern you know if you had a job as as a bricklayer you know you would lay bricks many many hours a day and you'd probably get pretty fucking good at laying bricks and you'd probably get them faster and more accurate and stack them higher and it probably look more professional because you're doing it every fucking day well it's that whole same concept with bench press isn't it or squat or deadlift if you spend ten thousand hours oh, under a bar then you're probably going <laughs> to find these small, like, minute skills that are going to transfer as well. So it's, it's, it's just actually getting in there and getting the work done, I think, for a lot of, a lot of people, is, is the big hurdle. That's, what, that's why the most successful people are successful. They do what's required to be successful. Yeah, now, I reckon... Um, well, we might even plan. We might even plan part two of this one because I'm just about to hell. I'm about to help and go kill a cow and get some meat. <laughs> just like cool, that is absolutely no issue so whatsoever. It's time so, to hunt up, time to hunt up breakfast. <laughs> That's brilliant. So I, uh, I'll, I will wrap up. Yeah, keep going, um, man. Keep going. <laughs> I'll wrap up as as I like to do with uh, all of the podcasts and just take you back for for a second and I yes. want you to imagine that you're taking a step back in time you're visiting your younger self 10 11 12 13 years of age something you know you're you're you're, you're very easily led and strayed and you take a lot of influence in that age and I'm interested to to figure out what you would go back and say to your younger self to help you get through everything that you've got through you know helped that's helped you to build a successful practice that you have met the coaches that you have put you in the positions that you have what would you say to yourself then to help you to get to where you are now? I'd say invest in face masks in 2019 by a whole shitload of them <laughs> and invest in Apple shares when you're 13. <laughs> and Bitcoin. Don't forget Bitcoin as well. That was a big one. <laughs> It's perfect. Wicked. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Man. Thank you very much. I will let you uh, I will let you hop off and uh, and we will uh, we'll get part two in the diary. <laughs>